Good morning, Faith family. Merry Christmas. Sir, prelude to the responsive reading, so that's good. It's good. Uh, all right, well, hey, so we're, we're in John chapter 21. As you see on the, the screen, life in the epilogue. We're going to read John 21, verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Faith family, this is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, well, good morning. Uh, here we are, right, 48 hours uh, after uh, the, the post-adrenaline rush of getting presents, uh, two days after celebrating Christ's birth. And, and for some of you, you cannot wait until next Christmas uh, already, right? All right? For some of us, it's, it's because we're, we're weird, right? You, you need new hobbies. Uh, for, for the others of us, uh, we, we wanted again because we, we felt like the joy of Christmas just passed by all too quickly this year. Our souls ache for more. It's like we're living life on the, on the verge of, of something that we can't quite grab a hold of. For some of us this morning, we ache 
and, and we feel sorry for ourselves. We want happiness that's always out of reach. For others of us this morning, we yearn for the return of our long-expected Lord. We're living here in one of the final epilogues of redemptive history, waiting for those credits to roll at the end to signal what? The beginning of the end. Please pray with me. Lord, let any sense of yearning, any ache of loss at what life could be or we feel should have been, any desperate desire left unfilled, let it all be overshadowed in eager anticipation at the close of this current epilogue. When daybreak hits and we hear your voice, we will know it is you, the Lord. I ask, Spirit, to work in our hearts now that we may love Christ, that we would please you, that we would glorify God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Spirit, please help. Amen. Well, if you've ever watched the, uh, the third Lord of the Rings movie, uh, you will understand better than most that there can be multiple endings, uh, depending on which like, nerd movie scholar you, you choose to, to side with. Right? There are going to be like five or six different endings to this movie. For those of you who haven't seen this movie, each scene toward the end of it uh, starts to fade to darkness, and then, and then another scene pops up, right? The, the first possible ending is just the, it's just the uber bleak ending, right? Like, our, our adventurer's quest has technically concluded, but, but you don't know whether they're going to make it out or, or, like, die in hot lava. Like, it's just, it's bad. Things are bad. So, like, four or five endings later, you're, you're pretty confident. A lot of your answered or, or unanswered questions are answered. And our passage this morning contains a single epilogue. And it's interesting, where John 20 appears like a good conclusion, John 21 fills in the blanks for us regarding a few things. And mainly for our purposes this morning, it fills in the blanks on the disciple Peter's public restoration by Christ after his public denial of Christ. In becoming an elder to his own flock and to fellow shepherds in the early church, uh, John's epilogue here is critical for Peter. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce, he remarks on the clear close of Peter's ministry. He says, Peter, speaking towards the end of his life as an elder to fellow elders, he urges them to shepherd the flock of God so faithfully that they would receive an unfading garland of glory at the manifestation of the chief shepherd. It, it is fitting then to fill in the blank of how Peter went from like frightened mouse to lion bold. But, but first, as suspected with any, with any epilogue in, in any good work, there's, there's typically a prologue. And we see this prologue. It, it's a beautiful prologue in John's gospel. It's, it's famous, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on until verse 19. Theologian Richard Bauckham, he notes that John's prologue has the same amount. You're going to have to hang with me here for a minute. It has the same amount of total syllables as John's epilogue has words, okay? And there's a reason for this. There's, there's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing mystical about it, right? We're not doing some weird numerology stuff. But symbols mattered deeply to the biblical authors. So, so like Old Testament feasts and sacrifices pointed to and fulfilled the Messiah, and the New Testament authors go to great lengths to show us how that works, right? In, in John's prologue his narrative symbols point to jesus so so in ancient languages uh, very briefly letters were also used as numbers it's like if every time we thought of 
A, we thought of one, and, and every time we saw a Z, we just assumed 26, okay? The 496 syllables of John's prologue and the 496 words of John's epilogue, as Richard Bauckham points out, this, this number, 496, it has the same numerical value as the word, the Greek word, only son, okay? But what is a phrase to us, only son, is the Greek word meaning only son, and this, this phrase, this word shows up twice in our prologue. And, and all John means by this, all John wants his audience to know is that this one and only son, this 496 number symbol, what it does is it ties the prologue and the epilogue together just, just like a beautiful bow. Okay, there's a lot of people that, that looked at John's original gospel and they thought, man, John, John chapter 21, I, I don't know if John put that in there. Because his ending is in John chapter 20. But there, there is a reason. John does not believe in, in shoddy work or shoddy presentation. The, the 496 syllables, the 496 words, it, it's like sending out this gospel gift with, with finely wrapped paper that just says, only son, all, just the, over the whole total package. Now, John doesn't have senioritis, right, where, where the epilogue is just kind of tossed together willy-nilly, right? John is like the one guy in one million who flips and assembles burgers at the restaurant just like the TV and billboards have it flipped and assembled, okay? He, he is precise. John gives us an unforgettable picture of Jesus and invites us to a morning campfire by the seaside where we feast on the word together. So this morning, uh, we will walk through God's word from two different approaches. Uh, first, John's eyewitness account uh, is a narrative, and so we will have some narration. And then secondarily, we will glorify God together by setting our focus on who Jesus has revealed himself to be. <clears throat> John's reason for writing his eyewitness report, it's actually revealed in your peripheral vision. The last paragraph of John 20, that we would believe in God's only son, his Messiah, and have life in him that will never end. So first, let's, let's hear the narration. Well, my name is Simon Peter, and this is my account of life in the epilogue. I'm the only one here at sunset on this beach in Galilee, though, though I, most, I know most people call it Tiberius now. Right? I noticed John wrote it down as Tiberius, and I suppose he's right, but, but I wish he wasn't. In my mind, calling it by its new Roman name, it, it's just one more reminder of oppression, my, my own hometown is just across the lake and a, and a few stone's throws from here. If we walked there now, we'd, we'd pass by all the familiar fishing villages and hotspots, Magdala, Capernaum, Chorazin, and the like. Most of us grew up in and around Galilee Sea, but now it's Tiberius. It's a reminder that we are yet again owned, this time by Rome. I've been away from my trade for about three years, and, and I don't even know how you'd eke out a living given how heavily the people here are taxed. These powerful dynasties, they sniff out money pockets like pigs nosing in the mud. But you know, it, there's no sense in wishing for those glory days of past when all glory lies ahead of us now. Well, before it gets too hard to see outside and, and see what's in my mind, I, I wanted to record my own thoughts on what happened this morning. None of us were expecting Jesus to show up today. 
He, he had told us earlier to head this way, but we all had it in our minds he'd get here later. For the past few days, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and myself, and, and the other two, we, we just didn't have much going on. Now, I don't know about you, and I'd rather make myself useful. When I have a whole lot of nothing on the plate, I want to I put something on it. Plus, the idea, just the idea of the sea helps me focus. It helps me think. It's, it's a place where, where the creaking, calm comfort of, of sturdy lumber could at any point collide with, with that splashing thrill of risk and reward of netting a big catch. And, and these days, I have a newfound appreciation for the sea, that the farther away I am from the shore, the less I hear that, that awful village rooster crowing and its awful guttural screech. Well, like the, just like the past few days, nothing, nothing captured our interest last night, and nothing captured the interest of our nets. We, we thought the short trip would do us some good, but, but uncertainty floated in our stomachs like our empty pile of ropes did in the water. And when we saw that first light just, just push out the darkness, it was a wake-up call. We're bringing nothing home to talk about. Uh, I, I say that, and then this happened. From far off at shore, I heard what I thought was, was just that, that old man Zebedee bossing us around again. Only John could make out his question, and he relayed this to us. He said, children, do you have any fish? Our muffled no was heard, and, and somehow, uh, and, and that's, that's when we were told that there were fish on the right side to shoot the net to starboard side. At this point, I, I knew it must have been that, that older-than-dirt Zebedee, so we wearily complied because none of us wanted a lecture from him. Turns out the words were not from the father of James and John. It, it was an old voice, but not like older than dirt. All right? it, was, it was more like an older-than-the-soil-of-the-earth kind of voice. And after what comes next, it might seem odd that we took time to count all those fish. But when you go from zero to 153 tilapia in six seconds, like, it just seems right to mention how much you got. If you were there, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you'd count it all up too. Really and truly, the most significant number this morning, it was the difference between anything and, and the nothing that we caught. And what I'm trying to tell you is, is that us, us nobodies who got nowhere with no fish returned ashore with much more than nothing. Tell me, what, what friend or colleague in your ranks can take nothing and with the word turn it into something? We had to take stock of each fish because, because otherwise, who, who would have believed it? Well, those, those wriggling fish loudly plopping up and out and down and back under the water, it, it couldn't help but put into my mind the strongest memory I have of, of that wild-haired prophet, the, the wriggling baptizer, it's the other John. His followers once relayed to us something that now just, it just lit up in my mind like the morning sun. He said this, he said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Strange as that, that honey-loving locust eater was, there, there was nothing strange about that. Unless heaven moves, you won't be getting much of anywhere. If you want to say you did it all, then that's, that's one opinion. But I want to be too sure it's an opinion that means much. John told me what he planned to write down about what happened next. He said that I, Simon Peter, heard that, that it was the Lord, and I threw myself into the sea. 
Now, now through is a, a strong word. Like I, I took time to put on my cloak, put it over my fishing clothes, and and so then yes, I did. I did throw myself in. I, I, don't, I don't know how familiar you are, listener, with with my first encounter with the Lord. But when I first met this man, I found out that he was more than a man, and it happened to look a lot like what happened today. We were out fishing with nothing to show. At his word, we slung our nets out, and school upon school of fish nearly sank our boat. At that moment, I knew I should have nothing to do with this guy. You know, we, we, we don't think about it often, but when we all, when we all see holiness, we, we know it when we see it. When every thought and desire of yours gets exposed, you'll say, that's holiness. I can't be around it. Well, I, I asked him to go away from me. My, my sin, my, my shame, it was too great. But what I have come to understand now is that running toward this man is the only way to be set free from shame. So was it a bit impulsive for me to jump ship this time? Well, let, let, me, let me put it this way. If, if King David's dancing and the return of the Ark of the Covenant was, was undignified, right? Let, let me become more contemptible at the sight of the new covenant, that resurrected God-man. John and the others slowly brought the boat in with fish in tow. As I neared the shore, I felt my heart racing from joy rather than beating fast from the long swim. As I approached, wading and then running to the sand, I cannot put into proper words the suffering of my heart that I saw when I saw that coal fire. My last charcoal fire was a fire of fear. When our Lord was arrested, I felt the comforting warmth of temptation, and I, I couldn't resist. My cold hands gained warmth while my cold heart denied the Lord. Do you know what that's like to warm yourself next to the darkness of sin? Take it from me. Sin's pleasure fire, it, it, it fades, it passes in the night. But here in the cool of the morning, Jesus welcomed us to a fire that would never burn out. Do you know what that's like? To warm yourself next to the light of the world. So at this point, John and the rest, they, they made it to shore. The Lord asked for, for more fish to cook, and I needed any excuse to step away from the glowing charcoal of conviction. So I grabbed hold and, and hauled in a several hundred pound catch. And, and now, now here's a statement for you, statement of the year. We then cleaned fresh fried fish off our plates with the resurrected Lord. And, and if it were not for the morning mist that started obscuring our vision, I, I'm pretty sure we would have been face to face just with the visible cloud of uncertainty that was in our minds. We, we knew it was the Lord. But, but believe me, we were, we were struggling this morning. After the resurrection, Jesus, Jesus looked the same, but he, but he was different. It, was, it wasn't just us men, right? Mary even mistook him for a gardener. Something happened. Something changed. I knew it was him, and perhaps there are those who will make the case that it was not. But if it was not the risen Christ, what gain do I have if I lie and say it was him? He told me who I was. He read me like a book, and now I will die for his name's sake. I'm not ready to live a lie, let alone die for a lie. But I am now ready to live and die for him. 
And, and I know what you're thinking. I know I told Jesus before that I would die for him, and then I turned and denied him. But I will tell you now why this time it's different. Perhaps, listener, things might become different for you too. But first, can, can I have any sympathy at all? I, I followed him for more than three years. I, I gave up everything. He was the Messiah the scriptures told us about. He was going to come on to the scene, bringing his powerhouse kingdom onto the political scene and give Rome a taste of their own medicine. He had unmatched power. We saw him revive the dead, miraculously change bread and fish into more bread and fish. We, we heard his voice, and the winds and waves obeyed him faster than we ever did. And then when they, they, they took him for no good reason at all. They, they beat him senseless, and I didn't know what to do. So yes, yes, I denied knowing him. I, I was ready to die at battle at his right hand. But, but I was not prepared to die in hopeless shadow. I suppose you think the temple gets bloody on the Day of Atonement. Well, you can, you can get out of here with that. Like a lamb led to the altar of sacrifice, he got slaughtered before our very eyes. It was frightening. Yes, I denied him three times, and this morning he requested my answer three times. Not, not because he did not know my heart. He's the incarnate word of God. He's God with us. He knows all things. So, so what's the difference this time? What's the difference this time? Well, the, the love questions of Christ to me over fish and fire were summarized in this way by, by a theologian who said this. He said, he said my actions, Peter act, Peter's actions, had shown that he had not wanted a crucified Lord. But Jesus was crucified. How did Peter's devotion stand in light of this? Was he ready to love Jesus as Jesus was and not as Peter wished him to be? That was an important question. Peter must face it and answer it. When in the back of my mind, after the Lord died, I wondered, I wondered all those years ago when I first met him and we were a part of his first miraculous catch. Did I leave it all? Did I leave my, my nets that were now torn, my gear, my bait and tackle? Did I leave it all to follow him just because I was in awe of power? Am, am I here because I submitted to what was most powerful? But now it's incredibly clear, and, and it's, all, it's all the difference in the world. I need the crucified Lord. The mist of uncertainty has now lifted. I, I do love Jesus for who he is and not as I wished him to be. Do you love him for who he is? And, and that's the difference. I was subservient to the Lord's power only, not his love. I am now awestruck by his self-denying, sacrificial love for a sinner like me. It, it should have been me on that cross. I, I denied him to save my own skin. He denied his own skin to save mine. I know now that in my final moment, when I'm being led away to my place of death, that place where I do not want to go, in that moment, I will not lose my life merely because I, I bow the knee to power. He did not ask me thrice over the, the question I really thought he was going to ask me, which was, Peter, do you submit to my resurrected power? No, he asked the triple question, do you love me? 
and thus I will die with joy because I love him too. Now, now listener, perhaps it, it troubles some of you that, that the Lord asked about the quality of my love rather than making mention of, of his unrivaled, unquestionable love for us. Well, let, let me put it this way. From my, from my current view, I see the knots holding our boat to the harbor. What I don't see is the, the better security from storm, the, the stone anchor holding our ship from underneath. I, I do still feel as though my love is like those feeble knots tied to the harbor, bound to break under danger. But my Lord's love is the solid rock anchor, unmoved by whatever wind and waves come overhead. So I'm, I'm going nowhere now. I saw something when he spoke the last command to me. Feed my sheep. Like Elisha's servant could not see those, those blazing chariots ready to rescue them, and the Lord had to open his eyes. What, what I now recall is what I first mistook for, for just the sunlight reflecting in the eyes of Christ. When my eyes are opened, it was not daylight that I saw, but the power of what seemed like a thousand fiery suns in his eyes, a flame with compassion and love for sinners such as I. And, and I see now that Jesus asked all his disciples the same. Do you love me? When you see him for who he is, not who you wish him to be, you are compelled to see what he showed the eleven of us, his hands and his side, and this pierced, resurrected body in scars that have undergone death and have now returned. There, there's no question as to whether he loves you. Of course he does. He suffered and died for you. Fellow saints, I, I know all about denial. I urge you to not deny this. Do you see this? Christ's love vast as this, as this Tiberius Sea. It is unquestionable in light of his scars. When you are face to face with, with temptation, when you begin warming yourself by the all too familiar charcoal fire of Christ denying sin, when you're, when you're charging your words with fury and spite at your spouse, again, when your anger with your children is about to explode again, when you see that open window of opportunity bidding you to just cut corners, just cut a little corner in your studies or your work again, when your emotions stir toward that, that other man, that other woman again, in that moment, will, will you wake up to see who else reaches out when you reach out your hand to sin? Your, your hands, Christian, having never seen or known divine wrath, is offered the hand scarred by divine wrath. It's now a sign of love, which speaks to us in the most loving way. Do you love me? His wounds have spoken. His spilt blood speaks a better word and will carry you and me through times and troubles that we do not want. His sacrificial love will carry you through loss, through extreme pain, and even through the death we do not want to face. We will face the end, not, not in solemn, dignified duty and submission to power, but with deep joy and love in our hearts for the Savior who first loved us. Fellow sinner, if you, if you do not see this love, if you do not believe in the Son of God, if you've heard the word of God and still refuse, I, I know all about denial, and I urge you to not deny this. This morning, we sat on sandy branches, cold and wet and unsure, but we left warmed by the fire of perfect love. So to you there this morning, I urge you who are cold-hearted, 
who are waiting in uncertain waters. Quit, quit searching for new gods like, like children exploring driftwood washed up. You, you think it's love and adventure at first sight until you notice that your new god, like driftwood, is just hollow. But whatever it is that you place your hope in, whatever false god you follow, the word of God is clear and it, it is offensive. And, and we, we hope and we pray that it does offend you. Your God will not come to rescue you. At the end of your days, whatever or whoever you think is going to heal your wounds or get you off the hook will fail you, will disappoint you. It will, it will be your ruin. Your, your so-called God will not rescue you. So now, now is the day of salvation. Submit now to his love. Don't wait to submit to the risen Lord when he comes again in power. It will be too late at that point. You know, when, when us disciples sat and ate with the Lord this morning, we all knew. We all knew it was him. None of us dared to ask him. You too will face this day of knowing. There will be no un lingering uncertainty in your mind. There will be no guessing games. We, we have this one life and the epilogue. Do not wait for the finale. When the roof you were under rolls back as a scroll and the sky splits in two, there will be no sense in debating philosophy and religion or heaven and hell. Heaven will be above you, hell before you. And, and our so-called important debating or smartly reasoned dismissal of the Almighty will be a vanity, a striving after the wind when you stand before the mind's maker. Do you know why the gods of your earthly hopes and dreams won't rescue you? It's because they don't love you. They will not die for you. They sacrifice nothing and demand more than you could ever give. But not our God. Our Savior paid it all. One poet wrote this of the risen Lord. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And what do these precious wounds demand of you? Turn away from your endless searching for washed up gods on the shore and believe in the safe harbor of eternal life bought with the blood of the Son. Fellow saints and fellow sinners, I, I know all about denial. In the short time before life's concluding epilogue, I urge you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and do as the King of glory and grace says, follow me. Well, and to <clears throat> provide a, a postscript to John's postscript, uh, Peter's life in the epilogue concluded when, as, as Jesus said, he did glorify God in his death. D.A. Carson wrote this. He says, what is remarkable is that Peter lived and served three decades with this prediction of death hanging over him. Tony Marita said that, this, that based on this passage, it, it's not so much, will you die for Jesus? That's not really the question, he says. He says, the question is, will you live for Jesus? Living for Jesus is about the neighbor that's difficult, the needs of the family and the church and the lost. Would you die for Christ? Okay. But first, are you living for Christ? Well, as I said this morning, we will walk through God's word in two different ways. We had, we had narration. And second, we will glorify God together by setting our eyes on Jesus as he is revealed in John chapter 21. So first, we're going to look at just a wide variety of roles in, the, in these few short verses that Jesus takes. Second, we will look at, at seven different commands, what they mean, 
And third, we'll consider how we are to respond to who Jesus is. So first, Jesus is the revealer. He's the provider. He's the restorer. He's the originator. He's the leader. He's the preparer. So first, look, look at Christ, the revealer, in this passage. Verse 1 and 14, they don't say that Jesus hiked the 75 miles from tomb to Tiberias. He revealed himself. As the resurrected Lord, the temporarily set aside aspects of his divinity have returned. J.I. Packer writes this, The New Testament seems clear and emphatic on the omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience of the risen Christ. He is the all-powerful risen revealer. And he has not stopped revealing himself to all who call on him in spirit and in truth. He's the provider. D.A. Carson remarked this. He says, as in the days before his crucifixion, Jesus is still ahead of his disciples, providing for their needs and serving them, a lesson the church must learn again and again. One commentary refers to Jesus having uh, fish frying on the charcoal, right? So maybe there's not 153 fish, maybe there's 154 fish, it, se- it seems. And, and then having the disciples bring him their catch as, as the double supply. Jesus is the, the double provider who feeds the sparrow and feeds your soul. His provision supplies both physical and spiritual needs on his terms in his own way. And, w- and whenever we might lack in, in physical need, we trust in that future provision into eternity. Look at Jesus in this passage as, as the restorer. Jesus restores Peter, though not without pain. Restoration of anything, whether rust on a car, cracked plaster on walls, cracked bones in the body, it requires intense focus, pressure on what is broken, and includes pain to the break. But, but the finished product, the reset bone, shows that all the, the seemingly senseless pain was worth it. The CBC says, Jesus and Peter's painful dialogue concludes with a delightful, feed my sheep, as if he should say now, now Peter, the last speck of the cloud which hung over you since that night of nights is dispelled. From now on, you are to me and to my work as if no such scene had ever happened. Jesus restores. Jesus is the originator. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. And then later, Peter, in his letter, he calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Jesus is the original and head designer of pastoral ministry to God's people. God used his prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament to to lead his flock, to accomplish his purposes. But on this side of the cross, he now uses pastors to lead his flock, deacons to serve. The origin story of biblical elders anywhere is found in Christ. Pastors in the flock of of God are in no way, shape, or form man-made. This is a a divine institution. The originator and upholder of the universe continues to uphold his 2,000-year-old church, outlasting uh, all other kingdoms and political institutions. Christ is our leader. The Christ follower still faces sickness, unexpected disaster, death. But but unlike those who resist Christ, we do not face them alone. In, In all things, Christ goes before us. He continues to lead us with with clear purpose and direction each and every day of our lives with with just two words, right? Try being the best leader on the planet with just two words, follow me. Christ is the preparer. Jesus being our leader infers that he is is what? Well, he's leading us somewhere, but where? Well, earlier in John's gospel, he, he tells us, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Church, this, and, and, and where, where is Christ today? He, he goes on ahead of us. He is the preparer. He goes on ahead of us to prepare a place for you. This, this perfect preparer promised that he will one day come again. Do you wait for him with eager anticipation? Do you love him? Well, second, let, let's consider the seven commands Christ gives to the disciples in John chapter 21. So from a recent sermon, I think of either Dan or, or Kyle's, um, uh, they had this quote from St. Augustine. And he says this, On your exceedingly great mercy rests all my hope. Give what you command, and then command whatever you will. Jesus has seven words to his disciples, seven commands. Cast, bring, come, feed, tend, feed, and follow. And, and all of them, Christ commands, and then he supplies what he commands. Cast your nets. Bring the fish. He, he supplied what he commanded. Come and eat. It's very interesting in the narrative, if we were to, to slow down in there, it, Jesus says, come and eat, and then when the disciples don't, because they're uncertain, they're unsure, what does Jesus do? He comes to them. Come and eat. He goes to them and gives them bread. Feed, ten, feed. Paul, Peter's letter is plain in his second epistle. He says, his divine power grants to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus says, follow me. We, we've seen this already. Christ goes before us in all things. So Augustine said, On your exceedingly great mercy rests all my hope. Give what you command, and then command whatever you will. So we, we trust and obey Christ's commands, not because we know how he will make it all work, but because he, he just always does make it all work. He supplies what he commands. Third, let us, let us respond to who Jesus is in this passage, some, some application. So first of all, don't pursue extravagant means of bringing people to the gospel until you have first exhausted all ordinary means of bringing people to the gospel, right? Go for the gold, right? Like, like get out there, get on the mission field. You know, no one is stopping you. Awesome, go for it. You have big dreams and goals and plans to bring people to Christ. Yes, that, that is what we want to see but ask yourself, why, why didn't Jesus place himself in the, the epicenter of Jewish or Roman activity post-resurrection, right? Like, that, that just would have made a lot of sense to me. Like, he, here I am. <laughs> you got rid of me, and I'm back. What, how, how many believers would he have had? Uh, theologian Dr. Morgan, he said this. He said, the risen redeemer and ruler was showing men his interest and power in the commonplaces of their lives. Maybe some of you here have something going on I, I, I don't know about, you know, but, but most of us don't live just extraordinary lives. At, at times, we get a taste of the extraordinary, a wedding, a new job, birth, graduation, promotion, but, but we live here in the ordinary, and, and, and what, a, what a comfort to know that Jesus meets us in the ordinary things of life, and he calls us to meet others in the ordinary parts of their lives, too. Second. Repent like Jesus taught us to repent. We, we see a three-part biblical pattern for how we are to change and grow as Christians. There are many ways that we grow and change as Christians, 
But let's focus in on, on one of these ways here in John 21. Well, first, Christian repentance happens through, through the Spirit's convicting us through God's Word. In His grief, the Spirit asks us out of love, do you love me? When, when we then experience godly grief for sin, meaning we aren't, we aren't emotionally distraught simply because of the bad consequences, we are pained to grieve God's Spirit because, because we live to please Him. This is the first step, to listen to God's word, bring conviction in our lives through his spirit. The second part is our response. Yes, Lord, I love you. You know all things. You know that I've sinned in this way, and you also know that I love you. We, we admit our failure and ask God his, for his forgiveness. It's not just about us answering a certain question. It's also about the question Christ would never ask himself. Though, though your love has waned, never once has Jesus needed to ask himself, do I love this child of mine? Christian, his, his love for you, it, it's just beyond question. So first we listen to the Spirit, then we respond to him. The third step, look at what Jesus does. Jesus restores Peter. He forgave Peter and led him toward love, toward himself so too does he lead us away from sin and toward himself. We, we do not turn away from sin in order to just run away aimlessly. The Bible nowhere just says, stop sinning, and then that's it. Repentance involves brand new action ignited by faith. When, when the, spirit, the Spirit first pumped gospel blood through your frozen veins and your heart of stone, and you woke up from spiritual death to life, so too, when we repent of sin, we necessarily begin a new action. The New Testament writers refer to this as simply as can be. For those of us in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ. We are to take our sin off and put righteousness on. Peter wrote in his second epistle, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Love. It is in no way surprising now that Peter ends these spirit-led actions with love. This is how we are to repent as Jesus taught us to. The final word of application is for pastors. It's this. Shepherd the flock of God, not your flock. D.A. Carson said, and the sheep are Christ's sheep, not Peter's. Not tend your flock, but tend my sheep. Each and every pastor must remember this. We shepherd the flock of God, not our own. Spurgeon said this. He says, there are preachers of the gospel who dragged a full net to shore. The great fishes have been many. They've been great and successful workers, but this does not prevent it being needful for the Lord to examine them as to their hearts. He bids them put by their nets for a while and commune with him. Now, I know this application is for pastors, but, but are you a part of this faith family flock? Like, please pray for your pastors. The, the spirit in us is willing, but our flesh is weak as all flesh is weak. Pastor Dan, Pastor Kyle, myself, do, do we love Christ? yes then our charge is clear. Continue to, to follow him, keep shepherding the flock, pursue the prize, leave all results to him. 
as, as Jesus reminds us, I give them eternal life. My sheep will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.